Our scripture lesson today is taken from John chapter 5. John chapter 5, I'll read 18 verses, but uh, focus on 17 verses, verses 1 through 17, but I'll read uh, through verse 18 of John chapter 5, page 1,225 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know it was who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, <clears throat> chapters 5 through 7 of John's Gospel show us a shift in the opinion of the Jews concerning Jesus. Previously, they had been curious and somewhat apprehensive, reserved in their opinion, but now they develop outright opposition. Although Jesus is performing signs that display his glory, instead of producing faith, they arouse strenuous opposition among the national leaders of Israel. Such opposition grows until eventually it leads to the death of Jesus. I might say by parenthetical, uh, parenthetically, a little aside here, We ought to note that in the New Testament, the miracles of Jesus had two 
great responses. Uh, the majority of re- people responded in one of two ways. Uh, either they saw his miracles and said he's doing it by the power of the devil and we have to stop him, or they saw his miracles and said, boy, this is great for us. Let's uh, follow this guy and benefit from his miracles. Uh, very seldom did it produce real faith in Jesus. Uh, remember the words of Abraham to the rich man who was uh, suffering in hell. Uh, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even if one rises from the dead. And Jesus did many miracle miracles, and it didn't produce a lot of faith in his lifetime. And even the disciples experienced the same kind of reaction when they were performing miracles. But brought people to faith was the preaching of the word. Therefore, when you hear people like, uh, I don't know if you remember John Wimber from the Vineyard Movement of the 1980s and uh, power evangelism saying the reason evangelism doesn't work today is because we don't do miracles. We've got to do miracles if we want to have uh, people come to faith in Christ. It didn't work then and it, it doesn't work now. What works now, what worked then is the preaching of the word. Well, regardless of this, uh, Jesus is beginning to meet opposition, and the opposition focuses on two issues. Number one, he's healing on the Sabbath, and number two, he's creating, uh, he's making himself equal with the Father. Lord willing, we'll look into his uh, making himself equal to the Father uh, in the next uh, weeks, but uh, for the moment, we want to look at this matter of Jesus and the Sabbath and uh, healing on the Sabbath, and look first at what Jesus did, and then answer the question whether he indeed was breaking the Sabbath. Well, what did Jesus do here? Well, as we look at this, there are some details about this event that are frustratingly vague. Uh, Scholars want to know, what feast was it that Jesus went down up to Jerusalem for? Uh, they want to figure out the timetable, the time of year, and there are all, all kinds of speculation. But the text doesn't give us any information about what exactly this feast is. Also, uh, another matter that is somewhat vague is the nature of this man's illness. We're told that people who were blind, lame, paralyzed, and so forth were gathered around this pool. But uh, what exactly was wrong with this man? Uh, He evidently uh, needed help in order to get into the pool, but he also tried to do it on his own. He was never able to get there, and uh, because he didn't have somebody to help him, he couldn't get there fast enough. But when he's healed, he's he's able to walk. Presumably he wasn't able to walk before, but it's it's all so vague. What exactly was wrong with him? The big uh, problem of this text, of course, is uh, the stirring of the waters mentioned in verse 7. He says, uh, when the water is stirred, I I can't get down there fast enough. What is this stirring of the waters? Well, verse 4 attempts to give us an explanation of what the stirring of the waters is all about. But if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll see a, a reference to some Greek manuscripts, uh, there's uh, letters there that represent uh, Greek manuscripts, and we're told that this isn't found, uh, the, verse, the end of verse 3 and, and the content of verse, all of verse 4 isn't found in, in certain manuscripts. It appears to have been added by a copyist to explain the stirring of the waters mentioned in verse 7. 
And so we wonder, uh, uh, what's going on here? Most modern scholars say that uh, probably someone else was curious about this who was a copyist copying the text. And so he thought he knew what the explanation was, and he wrote it in the margin, kind of like a study note for the, neck, for the readers of the manuscript he was copying. And then a later copyist saw it in the margin and said, oh, uh, the, the previous copyist uh, skipped this verse and, and realized his mistake, so he put it in the margin, so this copyist put it in the text where he thought it belonged. And, but uh, there are earlier texts that have neither the end of verse 3 or all of verse 4 in it at all. And so we wonder, what is this all about, this stirring of the waters? It doesn't sound uh, like something God would do. Miracles in the Bible are most always, in every other instance, miracles in the Bible serve one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to authenticate the bearer of new revelation. How do we know that someone speaks from God? Well, either he can perform a miracle or he can predict the future accurately. If he can do one of those two things, then it's obvious that God is with him. Peter said in his Pentecost sermon, This Jesus, who was attested to you by signs and wonders which he performed. And you know about that. You saw his signs and wonders. He was attested. He was proven to be from God because nobody could do these things unless God was with him. But miracles just for the sake of miracles, uh, you don't find that in the Bible. And so because it's not found in early manuscripts and because... uh, uh, it doesn't seem to fit with the general use of miracles in the Bible. We scratch our heads and say, what's going on here? This stirring of the waters, what's, what's it all about? Uh, and then there's the matter of faith. Uh, most of the times when Jesus heals somebody, he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. But it doesn't appear that this man has faith in Jesus. He doesn't even know who healed him until he finds out later on. So faith obviously played no role in the man's initial healing, whether he came to faith later. Uh, I'll have more to say on later. But nevertheless, uh, at the beginning, there's no faith involved. How can that be? Doesn't uh, uh, God work uh, these kinds of things through faith? And then there's there's the final matter of Jesus' last words to this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We want to know, was he sick for 38 years because of some sin that he had committed? Or was his sin that the sin of betraying Jesus to the Pharisees by going to them as soon as he found out who Jesus was? What's going on there? And what are the implications of that for our lives? Well, Uh, These are things that we wonder about. What feast was it? What was the man's element? What's the stirring of the waters? What's the role of faith? And and what's the relationship between sin and illness? Uh, Those are all kinds of questions that come up. But I think we, we can deal with these questions in part, although there's good explanations, I think, for all of them. A better approach might be to simply say at this point, what's John's purpose? And of course, John tells us what his purpose is. The last verse of the next to the last chapter of this uh, gospel, John uh, 20, I forget the verse number, but it's the last verse in John 20, uh, says, These things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. He's trying to bring us to faith. And at this point, he's bringing us to faith by showing us the nature of the opposition to Jesus. 
He wants you to know that Jesus had opponents. And he wants you to consider what his opponents are, why they're opposed to Jesus. You know, faith is not just a, a blind leap in the dark. You're supposed to think about these things. Should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in Jesus? What about his critics? Why, why didn't they believe in Jesus? Should I join the critics and not believe in Jesus the way they didn't believe in Jesus? Should I, should I give credibility to their objections? John lays it all out for you to meditate on and think about. We're so focused here on, on this opposition to Jesus. Uh, well, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's look at this miracle and, and note a couple of things about it. First of all, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast, and we don't need to know what feast, but we, it is good to take note of the fact that he's there, because he's required to be there. The law stipulates that Jewish men have to go to Jerusalem three times a year for these, these various feasts. And Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to do all that the law required of him. And uh, because he loved his father, he loved to fulfill the law. It wasn't a burden. He wasn't just checking off uh, squares on a box saying, okay, I fulfilled that law. I feel got to do this one, got to do that one. No, he delights to do his father's will, and he's delighting to go to Jerusalem to uh, fulfill this righteous act. And in fulfilling all righteousness, he provides you with a record of perfect righteousness credited to you when you put your faith in him. Another thing to take note of here is that he is performing a very powerful miracle to heal a man who has been lame in some way paralyzed in some way for 38 years is is a marvelous thing this is an example of power and he is again displaying his glory uh, through this miracle that he performs a third thing to take note of is that he is doing it for an undeserving sinner uh, we know he's a sinner simply because he's a human being. <laughs> uh, he's uh, a, f- a member of the fallen human race. He's a sinner in that regard. But also Jesus brings particular attention to his sin when he says, stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus knows he's a sinner. And Jesus does something merciful for him, something very kind for him. Jesus bestows kindness on the undeserving, even on people who have no faith. And that shouldn't surprise us too much. You know, Jesus, a lot of Jesus' miracles benefited people who had no faith in him. Uh, we think of the feeding of the 5,000 uh, or the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, uh, Jesus at one point said to them, The only reason you're following me is because you got your stomachs filled. They weren't following him because they believed in him. And as soon as he started talking about uh, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, they, they, they scattered. They didn't want to have anything to do with him at that point because he was dealing with sin and atonement for sin and that's not what they wanted. They wanted miracles. They wanted their stomachs filled. They wanted uh, their diseases healed. They wanted uh, somebody on a white horse to lead an army to drive out the Romans to restore Jewish independence. But they didn't want a savior from sin. And uh, But yet Jesus did hundreds if not thousands of miracles to benefit these people who had no faith in him. 
He's very kind. Now, the kindness of God, of course, is designed to lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, don't you know the kindness of God is designed to lead you to repentance? But, because you're not repenting, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You'll be judged more harshly if you have been a recipient of the kindness of God and not repented, uh, because that kindness was undeserved and should have humbled you and brought you to faith in Christ. But if it didn't, then your punishment will be all the greater. Well, the last thing to take note of with regard to this is the reaction of the Pharisees. They look at this and are incensed that Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. Uh, They can't rejoice in a man healed after 38 years. This man is made well again. Rejoice and be glad. Give thanks to God. No. All they can think of is Jesus broke the Sabbath by telling this man to carry his bed on the Sabbath day. Well, were the critics right? Had Jesus commanded this man to break the Sabbath day? In Numbers chapter 15, we read of an incident where a man went out to gather sticks on the Sabbath day. And he was apprehended in the act. And they went to Moses and said, what should we do to this man? And Moses went to God and God said, stone him to death for gathering sticks. Well, if picking up sticks and carrying sticks on the Sabbath day is a capital crime, isn't carrying your sleeping pad or whatever it is, sleeping bag, isn't that also a, a crime on the Sabbath day? Did Jesus break the Sabbath? Well, If you define Sabbath-keeping according to Pharisaical regulations, yes, Jesus did. But uh, that's not how we should define Sabbath-keeping. The Pharisees believed that keeping the Sabbath meant not doing any work, and they spelled out in great detail what work was. For example, uh, healing, sickness, was considered work. And if you had a toothache, the cure for a toothache in those days was to take a mouthful of vinegar and let the vinegar soak uh, around the tooth for a while. Well, you weren't allowed to do that on, on the, if you had a toothache on Sunday or on, on the Sabbath day, uh, tough luck. Uh, you, that was healing and you couldn't do that. Although, if you had some pickles, Uh, in pickle juice, and you were eating pickles for lunch on the Sabbath day, you could uh, take a pickle uh, with a little extra juice uh, and uh, savor it in your mouth for a while. And you could do that and and then swallow it and then take another pickle with a little more pickle juice and and savor it in your mouth for a while. And uh, that would be eating is not forbidden on the Sabbath day. Doing medicine was. And so they distinguished between soaking it in vinegar and just eating foods with vinegar. You were forbidden to do one, but you were allowed to do the other. Uh, Extinguishing an oil lamp was another thing that they uh, uh, talked about in their rules and regulations. If you wanted to darken a room so that a sick person could get some sleep, uh, then it's all right to extinguish the lamp. But if you were extinguishing the lamp, just to save money, 
well, that was profit-driven, and that was work, and therefore you weren't allowed to uh, extinguish the lamp. Uh, again, they wanted to distinguish uh, an act of compassion with something that is profit-driven and therefore work. You were allowed to travel a thousand yards. That was a Sabbath day's journey, uh, a thousand yards from your home. But if the day before the Sabbath you took a picnic basket with food and deposited it 999 yards from your home and left it there, and then on the Sabbath uh, uh, traveled from your home to that picnic basket, that was considered establishing a second home. And uh, you could uh, eat your lunch there and then travel another thousand yards if you wanted to and maybe discover another basket that you had left and established a third home. And so they had these these rules and regulations in uh, modern Orthodox uh, Judaism. It's uh, considered uh, breaking the Sabbath to uh, light a fire. And they also believe that throwing an electrical switch to start an electric motor is lighting a fire. So if you happen to be Jewish and you live in a high-rise apartment building where you have to press a button on the elevator to take you to your desired floor, you can't do that on the Sabbath day. Does that mean you can't use the elevator? You have to use the stairs? Ah, if you program the computer to stop at every floor on the Sabbath day, then you don't have to uh, push the button. It will do it automatically. It'll take longer because you have to stop at every floor. But uh, those are the kind of things that uh, that they did to, to, to make rules for themselves to make it uh, so that they could keep the Sabbath day. They had this list of rules and regulations. They would uh, redefine the commandment in manageable terms, and by redefining the commandment in manageable terms, they could say, I've kept the commandment. Uh, I have to confess that uh, I used to do something like that. Um, you know, the commandment, uh, third commandment, teaches us uh, not to take God's name in vain. We're to, to honor God's name. And I would type out my, my sermon notes and, and print them up and and then look and say, oh, I didn't capitalize all my divine pronouns. Uh, I better go back and retype it and, and capitalize the divine pronouns because I, I need to honor God's name uh, in my sermon notes, which nobody else saw but me. And so I would go back and I would capitalize all the divine pronouns and then I would check that box. I've, I've honored God's name with this sermon, therefore God better bless this sermon. This must be a good sermon because all the divine pronouns in my sermon notes are typed. Well, you know, there's no biblical basis for for uh, capitalizing uh, divine pronouns, not even a biblical basis for capitalizing uh, proper names, even God's name. Uh, the Hebrew alphabet only has one kind of letter. It doesn't have capitals and lowercase. It just has one kind of letter, and they're all written the same. And it's the same with the Greek language. They don't capitalize things at the beginning of sentences. They don't capitalize the proper uh, names, uh, pronouns. They don't have special pronouns for God's name, like thee and thou versus you and your. That's all man-made rules that we make up for ourselves, and then we say, "Good, what a good boy am I. I've, I've honored God's name because I, I use thee and thou when I pray, and I, I capitalize the pronouns, and therefore I have honored God's name. And of course, we do that with regard to church attendance as well, you know. 
I have to go to church on Sunday. Well, I go to church on Sunday, and I then I've kept the Lord's Day holy because I went to church on Sunday. And, and some people are rather smug and say, well, I, I went to church twice on Sunday, so I really kept the Lord's Day holy. Well, we, we've reduced the, the commandment to keeping the Lord's Day holy to a rule. Go to church once, and I'm a good boy. Go to church twice, I'm a better boy. And... and uh, and we pat ourselves on the back. We've, we've kept the commandment. Oh, what does God require of you, really? Well, he summarized the, the third commandment, and he summarized the fourth commandment. He summarized all the commandment with this demand of you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You really haven't kept any of the commandments unless you've done that. Now, does that mean that church attendance, it doesn't matter whether you go once or twice? No, it certainly does matter. Because if they are, they are meant to be, as Jesus' attendance at the feast, an expression of love. And we don't measure our love by loving Him once or loving Him twice. We love Him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And quite frankly, I've never done that. And never have you loved him with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and loved your neighbor as yourself 24 7 uh, 365 days of the year we all for short thank the lord that he did do it and he did it for us so that we might be counted righteous before god through his perfect righteousness now out of love for him because he did that for us we strive we strive to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength and and no longer live for ourselves, checking off boxes saying, oh, what a good boy I am because I did this and I did that and I've kept the commandments. No, none of us have kept the commandments. But we should love him because he kept the commandments for us. Jesus has a different understanding of the commandment, the fourth commandment. He says... On this day, my father is working, and so am I. What's, what's he talking about? He's working on the Sabbath day, he says, and his father is working on the Sabbath day. Well, to understand this, you have to go back to the beginning of the Bible and remember that, that God worked. You know, our God is, is really strange compared to the other gods of the world. All the other gods of the world think that work is a curse and human beings are created to be the slaves of the gods to do the work that the gods are too good to do. No, our God is a God who works. And he worked for six days and then he rested. And he entered into a Sabbath rest. And that Sabbath rest is not Sabbath inactivity, it's Sabbath rejoicing. Rejoicing in the good works that he has done, rejoicing in his creation, celebrating uh, the wonders of his creation and the wonders of his power and majesty and glory and so forth. God uh, has entered into this Sabbath rest and continues in that Sabbath rest. God's Sabbath rest is an eternal rest, and our Sabbath days are a sign to us that we're called to enter into that rest. There's a beautiful illustration of us entering into and joining God in his Sabbath rest in Israel going into the promised land. They went into a land where houses were already built, 
Wells were already dug. Vineyards were already planted. Everybody could sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree in a land where God dwelt in their midst. That going into a land where everything was done for them and they could sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree is is God bringing his people into his eternal rest. Although it's a sign of it, it's a symbol of it. There yet remains, the author of Hebrews says, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's still important that we observe one day in seven as a symbol of of our goal. Our goal is to get into that rest. And what work is Jesus doing on this Sabbath day? What work is his Father doing in their Sabbath rest? The work that they're doing is getting us into that rest. Their work is the work of redemption, not the work of creation. The work of creation is done. God has rested from the work of creation. He doesn't have to do that anymore. Now, he's doing the work of redemption. And it's not a violation of the Sabbath. It's so that the Sabbath might be fulfilled. The Sabbath was made for us, the Bible says. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man so that we could enter into it and enjoy it. And Christ has come to enable us to get into God's eternal Sabbath rest. That's the work that Jesus is doing. That's the work that God is doing. That's the proper work of of the Lord's day is to proclaim the gospel to gather God's people together for worship and to proclaim the gospel so that you can hear, repent and believe and become a citizen of that new world that's coming, that world where the houses are already made, the wells are already dug, the vineyards are already planted, where we can all sit under our own vine and fig tree and celebrate the goodness of God who dwells with us on the earth. What a glorious work Jesus is doing now. Our Sabbaths should not be governed by dozens of rules and regulations to enforce inactivity. There to be a time where we're privileged to put aside our normal labors to focus on God's finished work of creation and to celebrate his work of redemption accomplished in Christ and made real in our lives by the work of the Spirit through the Word, calling us to forsake trusting in our works and instead trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus met this man by the pool of Bethesda, he asked a question. The question was, do you want to be healed? And the man gave a good answer. He says, I have nobody to help me. I can't get there on my own. He he acknowledged his need for help. He acknowledged that He couldn't do it on his own. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to get into that pool which he thought would would make his life whole and well again. For 38 years, he'd been trying to do it himself. And he finally came to the point where he acknowledged, I can't do it myself. I need help. That's not... That's not the natural response of fallen mankind. The natural response is to say, bug off, mister, leave me alone. I can take care of myself. If I have a problem, I'll handle it. I don't need your help. I don't want your pity. I don't want your sympathy. That's what 
the natural response is. But this man had been humbled. And because he gave a humble answer and acknowledged he needed help, Jesus began to work in his life. And Jesus slowly revealed more of himself to this man. Came back to him later and and revealed himself again to the man. And we can hope and I, I think believe that Jesus didn't give up on him even at that point, but that he would continue to work in that man to bring him to a fuller understanding. That man is much like all of us. We spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves well, make ourselves whole, convince ourselves that that we can do it. We, We make these rules, we reduce the commandments to manageable terms, and then we say, okay, I did this, I did this, and I did this, I'm okay. I can I can handle it myself. But when you're ready to say, all my efforts at keeping the law fall to the ground because I haven't loved him with heart and soul and mind and strength. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've lived selfishly and self-centeredly. I live proudfully and boastfully. Oh God, I need help. When you're ready to make that admission, then Jesus is there. He's there saying, come to me, all you who are weary Weary of trying to do it yourself. All you are heavy laden with the rules and regulations that you've made for yourselves that you think are manageable, but you really can't keep them anyway. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will bring you into my Father's eternal rest where everything is all done and prepared and ready for an eternity of celebration in the goodness and power and love of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, you will enter that rest. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this cripple who acknowledged his weakness and his inability. And because he humbled himself, Jesus uh, began to work in his life. We pray, Father, that you would work in us also a spirit of humility. Help us to see that all our rule-keeping is not what makes us good in your sight, and that we can't just check off these boxes and then be satisfied with ourselves that we've done enough. Help us, O Father, to see that we can never do enough, that we must keep striving to love you with heart and soul and mind and strength in order to show our gratitude and our love that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. O Lord, may our hope be in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.